0: Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money talk. Money talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to Money Talk on Tuesday, the fifth of December. This is the place to come to for the latest business and finance news from China and around Asia. The original Money Talk. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across ten countries. And thank you for making this program one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong. In today's business and finance headlines, the Hong Kong High Court agreed Monday to adjourn a hearing on property developer China Evergrande's liquidation in a surprise move that gives the company until next month to come up with a restructuring plan that can win creditors' support. China's foreign ministry criticised the US Monday for seeing it as a threat after Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo defended efforts to deprive the mainland of cutting-edge semiconductors. Ms. Raimondo said Saturday that she needed more funding to prevent China from catching up on chips that can be used for military purposes. She said that this was the biggest threat we've ever had, adding that China is not our friend. Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman Wang Wenbin said the US should stop seeing China as a hypothetical enemy and saying one thing but doing another. Moody's has issued a negative outlook for the overall global banking sector for 2024, citing a deteriorating operating environment, rising bad loans and the war in Israel as major problems ahead. Sluggish global growth, a higher risk of borrowers defaulting on loans and pressure on profitability mean that banks face a negative outlook next year, the credit rating agency said on Monday. Indian stocks hit all-time highs yesterday. After Prime Minister Narendra Modi's ruling BJP triumphed in critical state elections, the Nifty Fifty climbed 2.1%, hitting a second consecutive all-time high. India's other benchmark, the S&P BSE Sensex rose 2.1%, also to a record high. India's stock market, which is the world's fifth biggest, has a 3.93 trillion US dollar valuation as of Friday and is closing in on Hong Kong, which is the world's fourth biggest market with a valuation of 4.7 trillion US dollars. On today's Money Talk, I'm joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Aldcroft, Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com and take a look at my daily newsletter.
1: Peter Money Talk.
0: U.S. equities fell on Monday, with heavyweight big tech stocks helping drag the major indices down from multi-month highs reached last week. The S&P 500, which hit a 20-month high on Friday, declined half a percent to 4,570 after five straight weeks of gains. The Dow shed 41 points, or 0.1 percent, to end the session at 33,204. The tech-heavy Nasdaq Composites, which has climbed almost 36% in 2023, fell the most out of the major gauges, losing 0.8% to end the day at 14,185. Small-cap stocks. Bucked the downward trend with the Russell two thousand gaining one percent. The information technology and the communication services sectors, which are both known for their tech exposure, performed the worst in the S and P five hundred. Each fell around one point three percent. U.S. Treasury bond prices fell, and yields rose ahead of a slew of key jobs readings over the next few days, which will be closely watched for clues on the Fed's next steps. U.S. two year yields rose eight basis points to 464 percent. The benchmark ten year yield climbed five basis points to 4.26%. Gold traded above $2,100 for the first time in history on Monday morning in Asian hours. Spot gold rose as much as 3.1% to a high of $2,135 a troy ounce in Singapore before reversing to end the day 2.1% lower at $2,028 an ounce as the US dollar strengthened. Oil futures rose in early trading Monday, but by the end of New York trading, Brent crude had settled 1.1% lower at $78.03 a barrel. Bitcoin rose above the $40,000 level for the first time since May 2022. The rally accelerated at the European Open with the token trading at $41,800 on Monday, and that takes its 2023 jump to 152%. The dollar fell against most Asian currencies on Monday morning as traders bet that the U.S. Federal Reserve had finished increasing interest rates. However, the dollar reversed course in European and U.S. dollar trading. In U.S. trading, the U.S. dollar index gained 0.4%. The yen strengthened to trade in Tokyo at a 12-week high of 146.25, but then reversed course to end the day a third of a percent weaker at $147, 147.25 yen per US dollar. The Chinese yuan also gave up early gains to close 0.1% weaker in Shanghai at 7.14.25 remember a dollar. In mainland stocks, the CSI 300 index slipped 0.7% to hit its lowest since February 2019. China's CSI 300 is down 10.6% year-to-date. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index gave up early gains to end the day 184 points lower, that's 1.1%, at a 13-month low of 16,646. The Hang Seng Index has slumped for four straight months now since July and has dropped almost 16% this year, the worst performer among over 90 major global stock indices. Doesn't look like it's going to get any better at the open. Futures markets pointing to a decline of about 36 points for the Hang Seng at the open. That's around 0.2%. Trading in the index should start at around about 16,610. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter- it's a Tuesday morning. We're edging towards Christmas. We're starting to feel slightly festive, I think. So we have a slightly festive panel of guests with us this morning. Stuart Allcroft, Asia Fund Management Industry Consultant. Feeling, stu- feeling cheerful, Stuart? Ho, ho,
2: ho to you as well. <laughs> Good morning, Peter.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think that sums the mood up this morning. We also have with us Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management. Morning, Richard.
3: Good morning. Well, I'm not quite so bar humbug as that.
0: Thank goodness for that. And over in Washington, D.C., as always on a Tuesday morning, we have the ever cheerful Barry Wood, our U.S. economics correspondent. Morning, Barry.
1: Good morning. I can't uh, match either Richard or Stuart, but I can say the obvious, which is... Three weeks from today is Christmas.
0: It is indeed. Yeah, it's creeping up on us very fast, isn't it? It's hard to imagine that 2023 is almost over. And um, let's start in the, in the US. Um, Barry, let me ask you about Jerome Powell's speech on Friday. Uh, the, the intention, I guess, was to try and push, push back against speculation that the Fed has sort of won its fight against inflation because futures markets now are pricing in five interest rate cuts for next year, starting um, in March he did say that it was too soon to rule out further rate hikes or to start discussing cuts. But then at the same time, he did say that they've achieved a sufficiently restrictive stance. So if his intention was to push back against the markets, it didn't really work, did it?
1: Well, it didn't work on Friday because the market, um, uh, well, they liked what they heard. Uh, but the markets are down today. So, I mean, I think they're still digesting that news. Look, from my simple perspective it is that we are shifting towards normality it is not as if uh, he's declaring victory on inflation although it was interesting that he's saying we're on the path towards two percent from the current three percent but the reality is that we do have a higher interest rate economy or you could say the obvious again which is we have positive real interest rates boy that is uh, after what we've been through all the way back to 2007-8, I think that's a refreshing development. As to why the markets expect there will be rate cuts in 2024, that must have to do with uh, uh, an expectation that all of the slowing that is going to inevitably result from the upward pressure on interest rates is going to have its effect and the Fed will reserve, reverse course. Again, I say from my simple perspective, I don't see that happening. But there's two other financial experts here who may have different opinions. Mm. I don't. I don't. Um, I think,
2: Barry, that uh, the, the market, if you like, those that, that's the market in this sense are the analysts who are, like to get their views published, are far too aggressive in thinking that interest rates will occur. And, and according to a report, some of them are expecting interest rates to drop six times next year. Uh, maybe uh, that's far too much, far too much. I, I, I think it's quite unlikely that uh, the Fed will drop interest rates before the middle of next year at the current uh, uh, state of play. And I think Jerome Powell, was trying to get across the message that inflation is not over in the US. Uh, employment rates have um, been very positive, but have probably reached a peak. Uh, we are coming up to winter season where more people get to be unemployed. Um, and I think a lot will depend on how much is being spent over the Christmas period by the US consumer. So we'll have to see what it will be like in sort of latter half of January, early February, to, to get a better impression. But absolutely certain, next week um, there will not be an interest rate cut. But maybe this pressure is to try to stop there being an in- interest rate increase mm-hmm. on the next week. Mm. Um, if that happened, uh, then then clearly a lot of bets will be off. But I I would be following, uh, I am following what's happening to the US dollar relative to other currencies. And after quite an extended period over the last couple of months of weakness, it's starting to pick up strength again, which would suggest that the currency traders think that the the US dollar and therefore interest rates will stay high for a bit longer than those traders that were being quoted.
3: Well, I think that that fits in um, uh, perfectly. If you look at what is expected uh, at the moment we're looking uh, all the markets are implying that we're going to get five interest rate cuts 25 basis points that's one and a quarter percent off Well, don't get the fed funds at the moment to five point three percent so we're now talking in the optimistic uh... view that we're going to get interest rates at four percent well that's not a uh, uh, a particularly good outcome when rates have been zero, one, two, three, four so many years. So uh, I think interest rates will stay higher for longer. I think they must stay higher for longer because money can't be free, money can't be cheap. But I think we also ought to expect that the market will see this as a disappointment, uh, perhaps in December, but but more likely early next year. Uh, and a few of the people on Wall Street are saying the same thing. So. Yeah, interest rates higher for longer, uh, dollar stronger for longer, but obviously some wobbles in the middle and perhaps some weakness in equities early next year. Do
0: you think the markets are maybe half right in that there will be interest rate cuts next year, but just not as many as five? So it's just a question of, you know, how many rather than not being any at all?
3: Yeah, yes, I think uh, and I think Barry alluded to it too, in the situation where uh, the Fed uh, can change its mind. So, if we do see a, a weaker economy next year because interest rates are higher, uh, I think it'll be more on the margin, but probably enough to see uh, a couple of quarter basis points off. So, the Fed can be flexible as well. It's not a, a it's not a a fixed element.
0: Normally, if you were to see one hundred and twenty five basis point rate cuts in a year. That's not really consistent with just this gentle slide back down to 2% inflation. Normally, to get that sort of aggressive rate cuts, either the economy is going to have to tip into recession or the Fed reacts to some sort of financial crisis. But it's not normal, is it, to see that sort of aggressive uh, sequence of rate cuts in a, in a normal economy?
1: It, it just seems to me that um, there must be some expectation that the economy is really going to slow. And I just don't see it. Uh, After all, this latest GDP number for the final revision, I think, of the third quarter, 5.2 percent annual GDP growth in the U.S. That's an extraordinary number. So even if we slide back to one, two, two and a half percent GDP growth for the fourth quarter, I, I just don't see that there's something that would cause the Fed with those numbers to drop interest rates. Yeah, and even the, ho- um, and even
2: the housing, even housing market. Barry is that if if GDP does stay at that level, inflation will go up, and and that is what the the Fed is looking at most closely for for interest rate considerations.
3: It it is true. I think there's another narrative coming in here that that we're forgetting about is that Ch- the Chinese economy does seem to have more structural weaknesses than just oh, it's not kick-starting after COVID. I think COVID has maybe triggered a number of weaknesses that, that maybe weren't necessarily there before, and we're seeing that too with uh, uh, Chinese companies. And China's becoming a very powerful deflationary force. Now, for the U.S. economy, that's wonderful because there's obviously big inflationary pressures within the U.S. You know, we're seeing uh, wage uh, rises go up, uh, but we're seeing companies, you you know, still... Um, investing still keeping people hired, the reason all of that I think is possible is because we're seeing deflation coming from China or disinflation deflation coming from china um, and that's counterbalancing the normal inflationary uh, aspects that you'd see within the u s
1: quite right by keeping prices low at the at the big department stores there's no doubt about it I mean good prices goods prices have in fact retreated. Uh, I've spent some time in the last week in Walmart and in Target. Uh, Sales, now admittedly, there were sales, but uh, I just don't see those prices, you know, rebounding back up. They've come down. And that, that was, I think, unexpected and certainly positive.
0: Why is it that the US economy is doing well, isn't it, Barry? Although the data this quarter suggests it is slowing this quarter, but not slowing enough to tip it into recession. But yet... Um, the American public just doesn't seem to be very optimistic about the economy and certainly not giving any credit to, to Joe Biden for, for anything he may have done to help uh, the economy. They they seem to be fairly gloomy about the economy. Why is that? Well, I think it's because of Mr. Biden's age. I think when they see him on the television
1: or any kind of public event, uh, you know, they're sort of fringing, mm-hmm. thinking, I hope he doesn't fall, I hope he doesn't make a mistake. Um, I just can't think it's any more than that, because, as you suggest, I mean, the economy has done so well, defied all the expectations of, you know, the best forecasters there were over the past 12 months. And we're still not anywhere near a recession, Uh, although that expectation of rate cuts must mean that a lot of people are saying, well, it's going to get much worse economically. But so Mm -hmm. far, I don't see it. As to why Mr. Biden is not getting credit and why the American consumer is pessimistic, I don't have a good answer for you. I I think the
2: answer, Barry, is simply that there's so much news out there about the Ukraine-Russia war. Now we've got the Israel-Palestinian war. Um, Those are the big negatives. And then there's always a negative going on in the u.s about china no one talks about anything positive in the u.s these days (laughs) that's Um, probably true and and you know that that has the effect on the psyche of, of not thinking positively about what's going on domestically? You know, if it is a domestic e- economy um, uh, story, then it doesn't get published uh, simply because people want to read about what's going on elsewhere and and, and the wars that are that, that are taking place. That's that's probably going to have to change almost immediately as we go into a, uh, an election year and um And then, of course it 's been of no benefit whatsoever for um, Donald Trump or the Republican Party to talk about the more positive impact of the economy and 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 um the Democrats don 't seem to be capable of talking about anything very much, so you know this is this is the this is the f- fact at the moment, I think in the u s
0: Richard, I wonder how much psychology plays in it an, an, an issue here, because e- even though the inflation numbers are coming down, um, consumers don't really think of it that way, do they? Because all it tells us is that actually... Prices are still rising, just not as fast as they were. And if you're a consumer, you notice that you're paying maybe, you know, last year you paid a hundred dollars for your groceries. This this time, uh, this year it's hundred and twenty-five dollars. You notice that your rents have gone up twenty percent or whatever it is from a, a year to a year ago. Is that what is weighing on people's minds? Do you think?
3: Well, I, I think what weighs on people's minds is, uh, you know, as Harold Wilson once said, "The pound in your pocket." <laughs> it. Although it's quite difficult to quote him as an economic guru, uh, I, I think people just just are, are concerned. You know, if they if they see prices going up, but their income is matching it, which it does seem to be at the moment, because you know we have pretty pretty um, uh, full uh, employment rates, then I think people are less worried. You know, and and yes, I think Stuart's quite right. There's a psychology of of negativeness around, but I think your average Joe is really uh, interested in you—you you know what's coming in, what's coming out—and people don't seem to be in a great deal of of stress there at the moment. I'm I'm talking generally, of course, um, uh, and I think there's also a, a big chunk of the population now which is more elderly, which are have final salary pension schemes, or which are sitting on savings, who own their own house. Um, so there's a lot of the population now that doesn't have to worry about these uh economic uh, up and downs um uh, and in terms of the young people, you know if they 're lucky enough to have a bank of mum and dad, you know they 're not quite so they 're sheltered from it a bit. So I think that people really are focused on what 's happening at the moment and um uh, in in terms of politics it 's not necessarily going to be done on how wealthy people feel.
0: OK, um, Barry, I want to switch to Gina Raimondo. Her remarks over the weekend have caught a lot of attention here. She was defending the, the measures to deprive China of cutting edge semiconductors. She said that uh, the US needed more funding to, to stop China catching up on chips that can be used for military purposes. And she said this is the biggest threat we've ever had. She said China's not our friend. Um, and she also criticized U.S. CEOs of, of chip companies, um, who, who basically she was saying that national security trumps the fact that they're losing revenues because they can't sell chips to to China. This has got a, quite a bit of attention out here. The Chinese foreign ministry criticized um, that. What's, uh, what do you think is behind this late, latest outburst, particularly after um, well, President Biden and President Xi only met a couple of weeks ago?
1: Yeah, and Gina Raimondo was among the people on the American side of the long table in Woodside, California. So I think that she's responding in part to that um, standing ovation that came uh, when Xi Jinping had that uh, gathering of business leaders. I think that has been picked up so readily and with such animosity from the right wing of the Republican Party and within the Democratic Party that she felt compelled to sort of steer in the other direction. However, I find it very interesting that she is taking such a hard line on this depriving China of the ability to catch up on these sophisticated chips. Maybe she knows something that we don't know. But it seems to me that um, what is happening at Huawei and other Chinese companies, I'm sure that some listeners have read that very complete financial times account on huawei and advanced chips last friday uh i don't think she uh, is on solid footing there and i think there's a lot of bluster but i mean these were very strong remarks when she says that uh, we will stop china from catching up i mean extraordinary good luck and and that's Uh, very i don't think it's possible
2: it's is completely opposite to the way joe biden had sort of dealt with uh, xi jinping as well um, the, the the joe biden was very much uh, of the view at least that's the impression that we came, came across that um, he's increasingly want to have partnerships with china and to and to develop a, a, a robust relationship but the robust relationship would be an active one not a not a A negative or reactive one. Um, And so I think that um, she might be speaking off piste, as it were, um, as uh, as I'm not entirely sure that she's talking from the same uh, playbook that uh, Joe Biden would be liking to have out there.
3: I, I I look at this uh, almost in corporate terms. You know, do we really think Pepsi and Coke would uh, love each other, or Airbus <laughs> and Boeing? You know, why should it be different between companies and countries? And yeah, China is a competitor. I think the US feel a bit smarted because their feeling is that okay, a lot of the technology was well, should, should we say uh, borrowed from American sources? Um, and there's a bit of pain behind there. Uh, But at the end of the day, you know, all's fair in love, war and industrial competitiveness. And this has been something that's carried on. So the Chinese are quite right to get very upset and offended by it. But let's face it, this is how the world works.
2: Yeah. And and bear in mind that it's American companies and others that are selling these chips to China. The American Mm -hmm. companies want the revenue that comes from selling it. Um, Yeah. And every time. Uh, it seems like uh, NVIDIA have got, a, have got a good way around it. Every time the government, US government uh, says you can't sell this type of chip, they invent another one that they can sell. Yeah.
0: And, 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 Gina, another one. Yeah. and Gina Raimondo raised that in her speech. She basically said, if you keep on doing that, the next day I'll find a way to stop you selling those new chips to, mm. to China. I mean, she was yeah. And, I I mean,
3: it's, 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 it's commercial warfare and it's yeah. been going on, you know, ever since uh, countries traded with each other.
1: Yes, that's true. I'm reminded of what uh, Elon Musk has said about uh, Tesla in China. Uh, He has um, been confronted by journalists who say, well, hold it. You know, everything that you're doing in Shanghai with production of these cars, uh, the Chinese are taking everything that you've got. And he said, that's all right, because the design of the assembly line, the stuff that we're going to do in terms of the manufacturing process, They haven't got that yet. By the time it's on the factory floor, go ahead, it's yours. I mean, that is probably not an opinion that would be widely shared in the business community, but I think he's got a point there because there is, as you say, Richard, this is commercial warfare.
0: Mm. And this is extending to batteries now for electric vehicles, isn't it? We had these new guidelines out uh, from the Treasury Department about companies um, that if they want to get the benefits of things like the, the, land, the Climate Law and the Inflation Reduction Act, limiting how much Chinese components um, are in them, or, how, or if they were sourced uh, from companies that are headquartered in China. I mean, it seems like the US government is really going for it.
1: Yeah, I, I, that's correct. And again, she's under pressure. Uh, The administration is under pressure because if you've got all these government subsidies, which we do to promote domestic production, but some of the components are coming from China, which was what it was aimed to avoid in the first place, that's a problem. So, you know, there are interesting things happening in the EV market here in the States. You've had General Motors and Ford really retreating. In the last few weeks since that UAW strike on the the workers side, they're essentially handing the domestic market more to Tesla, which what has two thirds of the EV market domestically anyway. And we don't have any Chinese cars in EV cars in the in the U.S. market. So, yeah, she's on more solid ground there than she is by saying we are going to stop you from getting advanced chips that could have military applications.
0: Okay, let's move on. I want to talk about global debt with you. Moody's has issued a negative outlook for the overall global banking sector next year. They're citing a deteriorating operating environment, rising bad loans and the war in Israel as major problems ahead. Sluggish global growth, a high risk of borrowers defaulting on loans and pressure on profitability mean that banks face a negative outlook in 2024, Moody's said. They predicted the biggest source of bad loans will be in Africa, followed by the Middle East. Among the advanced economies, Moody's said higher unemployment and lower consumption consumer confidence could cause uh, problem loans to rise sharply in the UK and Canada. They warned of stress property, pockets of stress in property markets in the Asia-Pacific region. And for the US, Moody said loan growth would slow, although it didn't expect their uh, major loan losses. I, I'm wondering... Um, if this is 2024 is going to be the year when we really start to focus a lot more on debt so far um, we've been able to get away with the fact that global debt is what over 10 trillion dollars because interest rates have been so low but that's not the case anymore now so do you think this is going to become more of an issue next year well i think, think
3: that the issue with debt is that we've been talking about it for a very long time you know for two three four years and it's kept going up we've managed to um uh service it and I, I I'm speaking generally now. Now in China we've seen um uh, an event which was the COVID event which has really knocked the uh the whole balance between debt and servicing uh off kilter. Uh and I think that there is this big specter out there that the whole issue about debt, and by that I also mean leveraged financial instruments like derivatives, um are likely to come back and, and give us a bite in the backside. Um, but I think we'll need some kind of event for that to be triggered off. And I don't see that event happening in the near future.
2: Well, we've got two events going on at the moment. Um, and a third one will arise next year, which will be all that putting more pressure. Obviously, the Russia Ukraine war continues, the Israel Palestinian war continues, and then we'll have the Biden Trump war next year. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> Um, you know, these the, these are three fairly big events which could have a, a, a big problem. But Moody's are not telling us anything new. There's absolutely nothing new in what they're yes. saying. Exactly. Yeah. We They've they've obviously been listening to our our twittering at uh, or Xing, whatever it's called <laughs> these days, on, <laughs> and, on, on, on Tuesdays. And um, and and quite frankly, um, I'm there's nothing to be surprised about in, in, in what they're saying
0: i suppose barry in the u.s there's the additional problem of how to fund it given that you've got this gridlock in, in congress that looks like it might get worse uh over the next few weeks as well, well
1: yeah the, the uh the body politic the the uh the ruling party the administration doesn't care about the african debt that's always it's, it's a recurring issue uh but if there's something happening in europe i believe there is a a strong sense that the American banks are OK. But when you get to talking about debt, you know, can you fund more money in a very heavily leveraged and indebted United States budget for Ukraine and for Israel? You know, this this is what we'll focus on here in in Washington. and And I think the answer is, of course, we will. Because it's the never never plan you don't get to it it'll never catch up with us, but of course we know it will, we just don't know when
0: mm, and and u s banks are okay, provided not everyone wants their money back at the same time as we saw back in the back in the summer, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, as yes. with
3: all banks. I mean, I did wonder why Moody picked on the banks, because let's face it, the banks, in a sense, are a resultant. If problems happen with the banks, it's because there are problems happening elsewhere. Um, the only exception to that is if um, the banks get themselves into trouble with financial engineering. And, and I think, as Barry's saying, you know, they do seem to be more secure on that front than they have been. They just offloaded the risk to everyone else.
0: And could the trouble be the Chinese property sector? We had the Hong Kong High Court on Monday agree to adjour- adjourn the liquidation hearing of, um, of Evergrande. Um, Judge Linda Chan says the case is going to be delayed until January after the creditor that bought the case said it wouldn't ab- object to such a move. It gives basically Evergrande one last opportunity to try and come up with a restructuring proposal that is going to be acceptable to creditors. It's got $300 billion um, of liabilities. Do you think this is just... Um, laying the death sentence for for evergrande
2: well the dead parrot's a dead parrot however (laughs) whatever way you look at it it's a dead parrot um and uh, (laughs) evergrande has been dead for quite a while now and it's just having its life um extended by um these sort of means Uh, what's the what is the point? I suppose the point is that it, it it's tr- struggling to try to fool someone but it 's got some life left in it and i 'm not sure who that who that will be
3: yeah that 's right they're spending all their money on lawyers but um uh, Mrs. justice chan is is excellent she is a, a financial judge and there are relatively few specialists around um, She is pretty tough with counsel in court uh, and and she did say this is the very very last time last time around but um she did want the minority creditors to have a bit of a say, and apparently that didn't happen, so it is being delayed. Um I think there's a lot of scaremongering going around saying that every if Evergrande do go bust, then you know we could see a, a, a an awful crash of everything else. I don't really see that happening. Um uh I think somehow Evergrande will be uh um, uh will will recover in that sense. And maybe it's not a bad thing for them to to actually go down and for there to be a proper recovery plan put in place because that'll give more strength to what might happen in the other uh, the other property companies that are under trouble and and maybe that will give them some support as well
0: if um, evergrand is put into liquidation it doesn't have any assets in hong kong so and i presume the chinese government is not going to allow it to use assets on the mainland to pay off Overseas bondholders, particularly when there's a lot of people on the mainland that haven't had delivery of their properties yet, because they're unfinished, they're paid for, but they haven't got them. So presumably, there's nowhere Evergrande can go to actually find any assets to liquidate.
2: No, that's that's the, that's part of the problem. Uh, part of the problem is also that Evergrande has been trying to sell off properties for highly inflated prices, and no one no one is being fooled by by that that at all um they they've been resistant to trying to allow others to maybe take a majority share stake in their business as well um that's that's held it back so i mean there are the whole host of different issues that are involved with the evergrande uh, story um but I'll, I'll come back to it it's a dead parrot
0: <laughs> in extinct. Well, maybe linked to this, um, household debt on the mainland as a percentage of GDP has almost doubled over the past decade to 64% in September. That's according to the National Institute for Finance and Development. And the Financial Times was uh, reporting yesterday that defaults by Chinese borrowers are now at a record high, more than 8 million people, officially blacklisted by authorities after missing payments on everything from home mortgages to business loans. That's equivalent to about 1% of uh, working uh, Chinese adults and under Chinese law if you're a blacklisted defaulter you're blocked from a whole range of economic activities you can't buy airplane tickets you can't use mobile apps mm. such as Alipay um, mm. and WeChat um, is this not going to become an issue do you think
3: well, you know, isn't it extraordinary that we all go around saying the Chinese are such great savers? They're not actually spending any money. And then here we have some really hard data that, in fact, there's a lot of debt around. Um, we're in a rather difficult position. I mean, maybe it's that the Chinese are great savers because they're saving because they know they're going to have to pay their debt off uh, one day. But uh, however you look at it, it does look as if it's quite a serious situation if not only corporates, but also households are in trouble
2: yeah but a lot of the households that are in trouble are uh, uh, it's because they they bought or have paid in advance for property that is now worth a lot less than they were expecting it to be so so the defaults are heavily on the property side already and and i think that will continue to rise quite quite sharply uh, certainly in in the first half of next year
0: okay
1: if the if the um uh, bondholders uh who are about to be stiffed from the dead parrot ever who are they uh, are they mostly within china is it, it seems unlikely that that would be a global event it won't be it'll be mainly china i think
3: well there are i think that the case is actually concerning six billion of overseas investors at yeah. the moment which is a drop in the ocean Compared to the 330 billion of debt, but I think the exactly. case in Hong Kong is is really a, uh, if if you like the um, what is it a magpie or canary in the coal mine uh, that would just indicate that you know there's there's more trouble there than than perhaps people can uh, actually cover
1: up.
0: Okay, I want to finish by getting your thoughts on global markets. Barry, let me start over in the US. Well, with global markets, actually, global bond and stock markets, they added over 11 trillion US dollars in capitalization in November. That's the second biggest monthly gain in history. US indices were all up almost nonstop stop throughout November, leaving them up around 9 to 10% over the month. Um, and also, any asset that you basically can't print is going up at the moment as well. Gold hit a record high as we heard earlier. Bitcoin up above forty thousand um, dollars now. Um, what what's driving this, Barry? Is it just the belief that interest rates are going to be cut? I'm not sure. And not
1: not not at all. Even in a position to um, give an educated guess. I mean, I'm I'm surprised that we see Bitcoin and gold rising while the dollar is still strong uh, and markets are strong. I mean, you can fall back on on the global risk of these wars in Ukraine and the Middle East if we somehow involve Iran. But, uh, you know, look, 2023 has been a good year for United States markets. And I, I suppose there's a strong case to be made that that'll continue at a somewhat Reduce pace in 2024.
0: I mean, actually, yeah. gold going to a record high is, 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 as you say, it's not actually a good sign because it's sort of normally a risk-off sign. People go to gold when they're afraid of something. It's seen as a safe haven. Um, so exactly. This yeah. is not seen as a and good sign. And gold has
1: not moved uh, for a very long time. Now it is. I mean, I don't know what that implies.
2: Well, well, I I'm wonder
3: whether... Sorry,
0: Stuart.
2: I was just going to say the, the rise in gold prices probably due to higher inflation
0: expectations and and the dollar falling recently presumably as well it moves Mm. inversely yeah I, i think
3: the dollar's fallen now gold's gone up in percentage terms twice as much as the dollar's fallen but you you know once people start talking about gold maybe there's a flow into it you know it hasn't been there but the thing that i find extraordinary is the fall in prices in in other uh, uh commodities oil is especially uh interesting if you look at what's happening in the middle east big fall there uh, maybe there's a, a lack of demand out of china has done it but also we're seeing big falls in things like wheat um and and foodstuffs uh which you know a year ago was was deemed you know food was just going to the moon so we're getting big uh, dis- disinflationary pressures around the world while at the same time there are inflationary pressures elsewhere. So um, I think things are just pretty mixed up at the moment. And we've got assets chasing, chasing their tails, some catching up and they haven't actually moved previously.
0: And, and normal <laughs> correlations are breaking down as well, aren't they? Bonds and stocks moving up and down together. That's not something we normally see. No,
2: and, and I think this is all suggestive of of um, certainly people who don't really know what they're doing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, 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 like us, oh. you mean. Global investors is the name for them. Yes.
2: Ho ho ho! Start uh, finish as we as we started. Yes. And what about here in uh,
0: what about here in Hong Kong? The Hang Seng is at a thirteen month low. Uh, it's down um, over twelve percent now year to date. The CSI three hundred on the mainland at its lowest level since February two thousand and nineteen. What ails markets here? China, um, just
2: uh, just the non. I mean, Hong Kong is so linked to China these days, that I don't think we'll see any great improvement in the Hong Kong Hang Seng Index until we start to see some upside in, in the China market.
3: Yeah, I think that's right. But I also think that Hong Kong then uh, may prove to be an option on China because there will be a lot of interest in Hong Kong and our, our particularly good jurisdiction for doing business.
2: Yes, uh, I think I think you could you could expect to see Hong Kong, if we see an upside, Hong Kong will be a a leveraged upside.
0: This slide in um, stocks in Hong Kong, and also the slide in IPOs as well, which are down sharply, has prompted quite a lot of commentary on Chinese social media. People saying that basically Hong Kong is now just a relic of an international financial centre, and its days as one of the world's leading financial centres are over. Now, obviously, there's been a lot of pushback on that from the the Hong Kong government, which has just focused people even more now on what uh, what some of these social media posts are saying. But um, John Lee says, "Remember, the city's still." Um, a financial powerhouse. What do you make of this?
2: Clearly, they've seen the video of our programmes to work out that it's a relic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I mean, Hong Kong, you see, I mean, this is the thing that most people around the world really underestimate about Hong Kong. Hong Kong has this remarkable ability of bouncing back when it has to. Um, It can go into hibernation for a while and live through the hibernation but when it bounces back it bounces back very strongly and i think that's probably uh, you know i think maybe if you if you want to use the analogy probably is in a little bit of a hibernation stage at the moment yes of course john chan, um uh, uh sorry not john chan. uh paul chan john. the financial secretary has to talk positive stuff that's his job that's what he's paid for um and and he wouldn't expect him to talk negative but it is the case that at the moment of course we aren't seeing the ipos we aren't seeing this or that but we are seeing other things and and tourism has returned Um, and, and and by the current forecasts we could see tourism next year higher than in 2019. So, you know, this this will benefit our domestic economy and, and will benefit a lot of the domestic companies which are, are underrepresented in the Hang Seng Index.
3: Yes, I think that, you know, we're in a situation that it's always tricky when you're, Uh, In a market, you know, Stuart and I are are, uh, not to be positive. You're always positive about your own market. But I think there's a major difference here is that Hong Kong is uh, easily the worst performing major market. I mean, it's still the fourth largest stock market in in the world. Um, And it is rank rock bottom of all the major markets in terms of performance. And what goes down eventually comes up. Uh, as, as happens in the other way around. So I think that, yes, Hong Kong's in the doldrums at the moment, uh, but it has huge advantages in terms of its different jurisdiction, uh, whether or not you call it international or global. Um, it's still different from China, and I think it's still the Monaco of China.
0: What do you make of the Hong Kong government's plan to, to try and make up for not having Chinese IPOs in the city to try and win Middle Eastern IPOs? Do you think that's a realistic plan?
3: Um, I, I think so. I think the, the problem with that though is that I I mean I've actually done Middle East funds and they're very illiquid. They're quite, you know, they're very small. Okay, we've had a few IPOs there, like uh Saudi Aramco, that's massively increased the market cap of the market, but you know, ma, ma man cannot live by Saudi Aramco alone if you're running a fund there. Um so there's a real issue with liquidity. IPOs are important uh out of the Middle East, but um if you're looking at the fourth largest stock market in the world you're going to have to have some pretty huge ones to make a difference
2: yeah i i you know from the middle east perspective yes it's a it's an interesting um market to go for it's uh president xi jinping started this off earlier this year and so it's inevitable that we will want to follow it up but um i i don't think it's got the legs to run indefinitely I think we still need to to look harder at uh, not just to China but also the U.S. At some point, we've got we've got to recover our relationship with the U.S. I mean, one of the big objectives that used to be the case was having stock connect, um, enabling mainland investors to buy stocks on the Hong Kong exchange, would encourage international companies to get listed in Hong Kong. We've forgotten that recently, and we need to come back to that at some
0: point. Okay, well, thank you all very much for your comments this morning. You heard there, Stuart Allcroft Asia Fund Management Industry Consultant, Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management and our US Economics Correspondent over in Washington, DC, Barry Wood. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more details and business finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's programme, I'm joined by Enzio von Faul, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Sunil Kashap, Director of FinMAT. And with a view from Japan, is Nick Smith, Japan Strategist at CLSA. Have a good Tuesday. Money talk.